Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Lawdown, a podcast brought to you by CM Murray and covering the law behind the news stories of the week. I am Sarah Chilton, a partner at CM Murray. And I'm Beth Hale, also a partner at CM Murray. And there's been lots going on over the last couple of weeks since we did our last episode of The Lawdown. But to start off, we thought we'd introduce a new segment to The Lawdown, which is our tweet of the week. Or the last two weeks, I suppose, is more accurate yeah, for The Lawdown. <laughs> Favourite recent tweet? Favourite recent tweet. Something like that. We'll think of something snappy for the next episode. And the tweet of the week for this week is one that, in fact, both of us thought was quite good. And it arose out of a tweet by the Supreme Court from their official Twitter account, basically appealing for people to apply for jobs as justices of the Supreme Court. And we just thought this was quite funny. Someone retweeted it with a comment along the lines of, you know, isn't it funny to think that someone would become a justice of the Supreme Court simply because they happened upon a tweet on Twitter and, and made an application? Because as most people will probably know, that is not how it really works in real life. And, you know, a, a person who looks at, on Twitter and sees it and applies is not probably going to succeed in their application. But it's all part of the Supreme Court is doing is making a really big effort to make itself more accessible. Yeah. And partly driven by Lady Hale yeah. um, at the helm of the Supreme Court. But just generally, you can watch the Supreme Court mm. proceedings live. They're very active, on which I do often. Yes. They're very active on Twitter. And it's actually, it's in stark contrast to the Court of Appeal, which is much less accessible yeah, and true. does much less of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's obviously to, to be commended, although, as you say, whether anyone's actually going to get a job as a justice of the Supreme Court by a applying Twitter by, by a Twitter application is... And can you go to the Supreme Court and visit the building? Yes, you can, absolutely. There are tours available. So all the the hearings are held, public hearings, so you can turn up and watch those. When there are no hearings going on, you can't just walk in and walk Mm. into the courtroom, but there are there are tours available and you can go and see it yeah. and it's a lovely building and it's really yeah, worth going really to see nice. and in fact the other thing that people might not be aware of is the fact that you can go to most courts and watch hearings including some criminal trials and some civil hearings yeah so all i mean in sort of we have a key principle of our justice system is open justice yeah. and so all courts other than in some exceptional circumstances are public forums so mm-hmm. you can go and sit in the back and watch what's going on employment tribunals yeah Um, And most people might be aware of when things are not public. So, for example, if you think about those judgments that come out and it's sort of A versus B or X versus Y and things like that, and sometimes they are not public hearings or sometimes the hearings might be accessible to people but the judgments will maintain certain details as confidential. Will there be certain parts of the hearing where people are not allowed in? Uh, people might be sent out of the court. But on the whole... Yeah, it's definitely... That, that, that anonymity is definitely the exception rather than the yeah. rule, the, yeah. the principle of open justice. And there needs to be good key. reason for yeah. it before you're going to get a judge to agree to it. Exactly. So, so yeah, so if anyone's looking for a day out... <laughs> and, yeah, we hope to bring you uh, another exciting tweet on our next episode. Um, so we were going to potentially touch on Brexit this week, but things are in such a state of flux with the deal or no deal and what that deal might look like, but we thought we'd probably leave that to a subsequent week. The topics that we really wanted to cover were what the impact on the domestic law might be under the withdrawal agreement at the moment, and also how the ECJ might operate and how that might still have some role in the UK justice system. But we will cover that in a subsequent episode when things are a bit more clear and we know what direction we're taking. Whenever that might be. Whenever that might be. But we have some other stories to share with you. And Beth, what's caught your eye? 
So the first thing I was going to talk about was non-disclosure agreements. Yeah. And it's something we've talked about quite a lot. And it might caught your eye as well, because <laughs> Beth was on Sky News about this on a debate with um, someone from the TUC and a legal PR expert. So you might have caught her on that. But if you missed it, she's going to <laughs> illuminate you about it now. So as I'm sure everyone is aware, there's been a lot of sort of... Um, publicity around non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality clauses and settlement agreements, particularly since the Harvey Weinstein scandal and more recently it's come to the sort of fore again in relation to Philip Green. And the government have come up with a number of proposals to protect workers from the misuse, what they call the misuse of non-disclosure agreements. And there are a number of proposals which they are consulting on the first one, which has received a lot of headlines, is that they're going to clarify in law that a confidentiality clause can't prevent people from speaking to the police to report a crime or to prevent the disclosure of information in any criminal proceedings. And this is one that my view is that it's really just clarifying yeah. what is already the case. I agree. At the moment, if you enter into an NDA, you enter into a confidentiality provision, that can't prevent you um, from going to the police mm-hmm. and, and disclosing a crime or reporting a crime. So I think what the government are intending to do is just codify that in law in some way yeah. so that people understand that. Because I think some of the headlines have been a bit confusing because mm-hmm. they what they've said is they're going to ban what a lot of the headlines have said is they're going to ban NDAs which prevent you from going to the police. And in fact, that was already the case. Yeah. So I'm, I, my worry is that actually some of the headlines will confuse people yeah. and make people think that they can't do that at the moment mm-hmm. when when they can. Because actually that is one of the problems at the moment that we would say needs changed and dressed is that people don't fully understand necessarily the limitations of their non-disclosure clause yeah and it's i mean i think that it's really obviously really important particularly when you're dealing with vulnerable individuals who might have gone through some traumatic um experiences that they understand what they're signing and so some of the other proposals by the government are i think really welcome in that regard so one of them is that they're going to require a clear written description of rights before anything is signed in confidentiality clauses. So there's going to there'll be some kind of standard document, mm. I guess, or a standard wording for confidentiality clause, which says this is what it means, this is what you can and can't do when mm. you signed it. And actually that's something that we're seeing more and more anyway. Um, for example, we would always provide it to clients when uh, sort of provide that kind of explanation to clients who are entering into NDAs. Um, and I think it's just becoming more and more common that that yeah, is what people do, that people really make sure that people understand what they're signing. Mm. Um, and they're also going to, one of the proposals is that they are going to uh, require legal advice to be taken where a settlement agreement includes a confidentiality mm-hmm. clause. And it's already the case that in order to enter into a valid settlement agreement with which, your employer... Which waives a claim. Which waives a, a claim. statutory claim. Yeah, exactly. One which waives a statutory claim. You have to take independent advice yeah. on the terms and effect of that agreement. But what the government is saying is they're going to extend that so that someone has to advice specifically which covers the limits of any confidentiality clauses Mm. in that settlement agreement and again I think that's a really welcome change because actually it means that people will have a better understanding of what they're signing up to. And one of the things that you flagged when you were speaking about this was the complications around the law of whistleblowing and why that is a complicating factor because at the moment like going to the police people can make protected disclosures. Yeah so you can't any NDA which purports to prevent someone from blowing the whistle under the current whistleblowing legislation yeah. is void and so yeah. you, you can't prevent people from doing that um, but that's not particularly helpful and it's, it often says in a settlement agreement nothing in this agreement shall prevent you from 
um, making a protected disclosure under Section 43A of the Employment Rights yeah. Act. Now, most people what reading does that mean that, to most people? Most people reading that will be like, well, that's lovely, but I don't know what it means. Yes. Um, so unless you're an employment lawyer, you probably don't know what that means. Yeah. And, and even if you have it explained to you by an employment lawyer, the, the whistleblowing legislation, the requirements for making a protected, mm. protected disclosure under the legislation, they're pretty complicated. And are very fact and circumstance dependent. Yes. So it's very difficult to say to someone about something that might happen in the future. If X, Y and Z happens, yes, you'll be able to speak about that or no, you won't be able to speak about yes. that because of this NDA. So in essence, what that legislation effectively does is forces that person to be in a position whereby they still don't know what they can can't say or they have to go back and take additional legal advice yeah probably at their own cost to work out whether or not what they're about to do is a protected disclosure or not yes Um, and there are other sort of limitations to to ndas which which already exist and which people aren't sort of adequately aware of i think things like you know an nda can't stop you from going speaking to your doctor or your therapist those people are in any event Bound by, bound by confidentiality under as part of their professional conduct rules. Yeah. You know, you couldn't be sued for breach of contract for talking to those people yeah. about your, your experiences. So I think the position is not ideal at the moment because people don't know what they're signing up to. And I think yeah. that is what's going to change. Yeah. We are going to do a full podcast we on are. NDAs in which we'll talk about all these issues we in could much talk more detail. We could talk about it for a long time. Yeah. So in an upcoming... Uh, CM Murray podcast we will talk exclusively about NDAs and debate kind of pros and cons of NDAs mm. and circumstances in which they can be legitimately used in our view and circumstances in which there is a serious need for reform and also areas in which they are particularly dangerous and cause particular issues um, and we'll cover all of that in more detail yeah we don't want to take up the whole episode with NDAs no. again because they do come up a lot they come up a lot um, and they have particularly in the last sort of 18 yeah. months and it'll be good uh, really good actually when the government puts in place new legislation and everybody f- for the first time really knows where they stand yeah much better than they do now um yes. it's just a shame that, that as you say some of the headlines might have muddied the waters as regards to the current law yeah. by implying that certain things don't exist now which actually do yes but hopefully that's, that's right. why people at like you on tv beth <laughs> <laughs> dispel those myths um Aside from NDAs, one thing that's come up quite a few times over the last few weeks for me is the gender pay gap. People are obviously gearing up to round two of gender pay gap reporting in April this year. And some data has been published and the BBC have done some research into that data in relation to what's happened to pay gaps since last year. So kind of we're nearly one year on. And they have actually found that in a lot of cases the pay gap has grown rather than reduced. And I think most people would have thought that the pay gap would have reduced because there was such an amount of publicity around pay gap and around things people had to do to reduce it. And Yeah, and there was lot a lot of big talk from, from big, big companies, companies yeah. about what they were doing to reduce the pay gap. Exactly. And it seems that in some respects at least that talk has not either been put into action or been effective. Yes. I mean, I think part of the thing is it, it takes time to effect yeah. these changes. And actually, they were only required to report for the first time last year. And this is so this is the second, what we're, the deadline is up, coming up in April for the next round of well, reports. Well, there's also technicality there, isn't there? Because the, the way that the reporting works is that they reported last April um, and then the figures which they used to report this April were actually crystallised last April. Yeah. So in essence, there has been no time for what was said last April about measures that they put in place to reduce gap, etc., to take effect. Albeit, I think a lot of people should have been thinking about that 
for a couple of years before because we all knew the legislation was coming into effect. Although the exact terms of legislation weren't clear until mm. very shortly before the reporting requirements came in. But, yeah, I, mean, I think there hasn't been probably enough time to... And these things do take a long they time. They do take a long time. I mean, so th- the stats would tell us that four in ten private companies who have published their latest pay gap figures are reporting wider gaps, and that's according to some BBC analysis. They've named some of those companies, so they include QuickFit, Power, and Virgin Atlantic. Um, Virgin Atlantic doesn't surprise me because it falls into the same trap as EasyJet fell into last year, which is that they are an airline. And... EasyJet published quite a large gender pay gap last year, but said that one of the challenges they had is that the majority of their flight attendants are female and the majority of their pilots are male. And that, they say, was because they weren't getting women applying for flight school and they were getting very few men comparatively applying to be flight attendants. And, and clearly pilots get paid more than well, flight exactly. attendants. And so I imagine Virgin Atlantic have a similar demographic within yeah. their... Um, employees but nevertheless I think what EasyJet had said was they had set targets for certain percentages of women to be enrolling in flight school I don't know if it's really called flight school but I like to think <laughs> of it like Top Gun yeah. so they had a certain quota that they wanted to meet by a certain time and hopefully in industries like that who are affected by these types of issues whereby maybe women might more typically not choose particular professions and those are societal issues rather yes. than employer issues. But and I think that's, that's part of the issue with the whole gender pay gap yeah. discussion is that you can say, well, this employer has very large gender pay gap, but actually, although that might be partly down to the employer, it is also probably largely down to the sort of societal yeah. issues around how we teach our children, what we encourage our children, what careers we encourage our children into and how that works. I think it's such a big issue. Extent to which someone, let's say, take EasyJet or Virgin Atlantic, could encourage people by, you know, going into schools and teaching them about career as a pilot and informing them about that and making people aware of their education programmes. But there's a debate as to whether or not it's the responsibility of an employer like that or whether it's the responsibility of the education system and more widely society at large yeah, and parents and people and yeah there's obviously no question that it has taken far too long or is taking far too long to reduce the gender pay gap but I, it doesn't surprise me hugely that actually there hasn't been a sort of vast improvement no, since last year me neither they also the report from the bbc indicates that banks are performing badly again in the relation to the gender pay in gap in relation to the gender pay gap so apparently rbs Average gender pay gap was 36.8%. That is probably, well, it's higher than the average. The average is about 18% in the, in the UK. Yeah. They have pledged to get women into senior roles. And that flags what I think is one of the big issues of the gender pay gap. So it's worth just recapping that the gender pay gap is not equal pay. So it is not about saying that two people who do exactly the same job, the woman gets paid less than the man. So it's not saying... Uh, two flight attendants who are exactly at the same grade with an easy jet the man is paid more than the woman that's not happening and actually I think less and less those sorts of things are happening they do still exist there are still equal pay problems in some industries but the gender pay gap I think really tells us that women are not occupying more well-paid roles they're less well represented at senior levels in businesses and more represented at more junior, lower-paid levels in business, whereas men are more dominant in senior levels. And that is, in essence, what contributes to these large gender pay gap figures, aside from 
industry quirks like pilots and, and other industries which might be traditionally more male or female dominated yeah. in certain roles but so in a lot of the sort of service um the professional services so and, and financial services you'll have a lot of support staff mm-hmm. who are lower paid and predominantly female yeah and then you have an issue that at the senior level in those organizations there are predominantly men yeah and there are things that can be done about that so if you take law for example and obviously it's close to home for us and it's easier for us to talk about it but law is probably quite typical of a lot of professional financial services where you have graduates coming in and you've broadly 50-50 male-female divide. But by the time you get to partner level in law firms, you're looking at about 20%, 80%. So 20% women, 80% men. And there's multiple reasons for that. Um, some of it is self-selection. That's not to say that women are choosing of their complete free will to not make partner or to drop out of the legal profession altogether. It may be self-selection based on the fact that they don't see the role as one that they want to do if, for example, they have caregiving responsibilities. And I don't just refer to them having children. A lot of people, particularly in generation that we see at the moment, so between age sort of 30 and 50 or 30 and 60, are in that sandwich generation, it gets called, whereby they have obligations to parents and to children. So they are often sort of caring for people at both ends. And that can have a huge impact on their work or their view towards work. So there's that issue around self-selection. I don't know if self-selection is quite the right word to call it because it doesn't feel like a choice to me, but it's, no, but you know, it's, yeah. it's that's what it's called. And then there's a whole other issue, which is that there are barriers in place that prevent women from achieving, say, let's say, partnership in a law firm. And that might be related to lack of support when they return from maternity leave. So in a professional services context, when someone goes off on maternity leave they will typically give their clients to someone else to look after and if the firm is not supportive they may not get those clients back when they return if they don't get those clients back they might not make certain targets for origination i.e when you know bringing new work in or for just billing as in doing work and billing it and that might make their promotion prospects delayed or hold them back from promotion and if they get held back from promotion their pay will not increase and as a result of that, they will end up occupying more low-paid roles, while men will progress and will occupy high-paid yeah. roles. And there's an issue in relation to flexibility as well. And I think as a society, we have a long way to go in relation to mm-hmm. flexibility of workforces. And you know, I think there are some roles in which it's generally very difficult to, to work part-time. And I think flexibility definitely cuts both ways in that, you know, employees workers have to be flexible yeah. with their employers and employers ought to be flexible with them but I think all that being said I think we genuinely have a long way to go before flexible working is properly recognised and properly rewarded yeah. and I think that's um, and it's a that's huge a challenge. factor of gender pay because no matter what the government has tried to do with shared parental leave the majority of caregiving to particularly children it is done a lot of the time by women and, yeah. and women still take longer periods of maternity leave than men take paternity leave or shared parental leave generally speaking and until we address these issues that then arise from those periods of leave or flexible working or part-time working and how they impact upon someone's career progression we will not solve the gender pay conundrum no absolutely and again i mean those are partly employer issues and partly people you know employers having to think a little bit more sort of outside the box for mm. want of a less 
cliched term about how people work and how they allow them to work and how you know how they can get their work done but it's also about sort of society and 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 our expectations on women and expectations of men and and that's got some shifting to do too if we genuinely want men to be sort of taking an equal share of the childcare burden yeah beth finally one case that came up a few weeks ago but we haven't spoken about it on the lawdown is the, I like to call it the Jewish nursery case, but do you want to explain what that actually means? Yeah, it's a case that was um, decided by the Employment Appeal Tribunal recently in relation to religion and belief discrimination. And the case was about a woman who worked in a Jewish nursery, which was served an Orthodox Jewish community. And she cohabited with her boyfriend. They weren't married. She was also Jewish and part of the same community, but some parents at the nursery found out that she cohabited with her boyfriend complained to the nursery and said that this was inappropriate and not in line with the sort of values that the nursery was seeking to implement in its in its children and she was called into a meeting with her managers who said to her look what you do in your private life is none of our business but could you just lie to us and tell us that you're no longer cohabiting so that we can tell the parents that that's the case they also said various things to her about the inappropriateness contrary to what they said about it not being any of their business they did also say to her that you know cohabiting was inappropriate and she should you know if she was opposed to marriage maybe she should um, seek some counselling about that and that she should be worried about not having had children yet at the ripe old age of I think she was 23. So she refused to lie about her cohabiting and then was subsequently dismissed and she brought various claims against the nursery one of which was for uh, discrimination on the grounds of her religion and belief and essentially the way the claim was framed it was it was framed that she was discriminated against because of the nursery owner's religion and belief not hers and on that basis her claim in relation to religion and belief discrimination failed because the EAT held off the back of the gay cake case which we've previously discussed on the law down they basically said that you can't discriminate on the on the basis of the discriminator's religion or belief so it's that that can't be a grounds for the discrimination so because it wasn't on the grounds of her or because of her religion that claim failed she did succeed in a sex discrimination claim and so she, the case has been remitted back to the employment tribunal to assess compensation in relation to the sex discrimination claim but it's just an interesting point and a useful reminder that it can't be discrimination if it is on, if it is because of the religion of the alleged discriminator because it can be discrimination if it's because of the religion of someone else yes for example your brother or your mother or friend or whatever yes yeah because that would be discrimination by association but if it's on the basis of the discriminator's own religion yeah it's interesting interesting decision it is Um, and so that is all we have time for we will be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of the law down if you have any questions you want to ask us about stories we've covered or suggestions for stories to cover in the future please email us our details are in the podcast notes if you have a tweet of the week that you'd like to submit to us then please send it in and we will consider it and we might even have to expand it to more than one tweet of the week yeah if we get lots of why submissions. not <laughs> if you like this podcast please rate and review us because it does help other people to find us and to listen to us and thank you very much for listening thanks for listening